0: Two mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of July, 2021, and this is episode 218. On today's Dispatches podcast I talked to historians and battlefield guides Dan Hill and Paul Johnson about their recent book that looked at the story and experience of Hertfordshire soldiers and civilians during the Great War. This book is published by Frontline Books. Dan and Paul spoke to me over the interweb from their homes in Hertfordshire. Hi, Dan and Paul. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourselves and how you each became interested in the Great War? Dan, could we start with you?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Hi, Tom. Um, my name's Dan Hill. I'm a military historian. Uh, I sp- specialise in the, uh, the history of the Great War with a particular interest in the British Expeditionary force on the Western Front. Um, I suppose my um, interest in military history has been lifelong, really. Uh, I couldn't absolutely... Uh, nail a point where uh, I, I found that interest but I, I can if you like um, consider a point where that interest really became profound and that was a, a visit when I was um, about eight years old to uh, Itarple, a tarpula military cemetery with a friend uh, their family and uh, I was taken to this sea of headstones in a, in a, a place like I'd never seen before um, I led up to one particular one not knowing why um, unbeknownst to me my mother had told uh, my friend's parents that um, actually this was a place to go And I was told at that spot and on that point that that was my uh, great, great grandfather's grave. Um, And I think that sparks an interest and a passion continues to this day. Paul, what about you?
2: Uh, for me, really, it's a question. I, it's almost like I was born to it. Uh, obviously, uh, as a uh, military historian, researcher, uh, and author, uh, you know, back in the day when we had Victor comics and annuals for Christmas, uh, my father, grandfather, everybody was in the services, uh, and then of course, uh, like Dan, had the relatives who were killed in the Great War, uh, and then of course that developed over time into a not only to an interest in the individual, then you start to look at things like local war memorials, et cetera, uh, and it takes off from there, really, and becomes... It goes from an interest to an obsession to... you know, life's breath, really.
0: Yes, I know. It's a, it's a bit like a cult. You can uh, you can you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Now we're <laughs> going to talk about your book on Hertfordshire soldiers during the Great War. I wonder whether you could start by giving us a brief overview of what the book covered. Is that me? Go for it, Paul.
2: We said we going for it. So really, it's a snapshot, Tom. Uh, the county suffered 20, in excess of 23,000 casualties during the Great War. There was in excess of uh, 150,000 men serving across from across the county. Um, so it's impossible to tell everybody. So we just tried to do just a quick snapshot, really, uh, to share some of the stories. And also, of course, those stories that started to build uh, from the Hearts at War project, uh, which we've yeah, Dan had generated and been involved in uh ever
1: since
0: its inception. So that, that leads me to my next question. Why a book on Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire soldiers?
1: On, well, uh I'll pause as so you can edit that. Well, yeah, a great question, Tom. Uh, I suppose uh, why not a book on Hertfordshire soldiers would be uh, probably the answer that Paul and I would give you. Um, You know, Hertfordshire has has got an incredibly diverse wartime history, Um, you know, whether it's uh, on the home front, looking at things like um, Zeppelin raids or voluntary detachment hospitals, um, convalescents, uh, any number of things, um, let alone Looking at the uh, the contribution of Hartfordshire men uh, and women uh, on the uh, on the fighting fronts, it, it really has a little bit of everything. And being a Hartfordshire native, and, and the same with Paul, uh, we thought it was a, a great opportunity to shine a spotlight on the county um, and what those men and women achieved over that four-year period. And what sources did you draw on?
2: Oh well, well many sources. these the primary sources at places like the National Archives, of course. Then there are the resources of local archives, Hartfordshire. Archives, of course, in particular, but most importantly, and it certainly came out of the Hearts of War project, uh, is the information that came directly from the family: letters, photographs, information, things that were sh- that were shared through the project that really, you know, started to bring stories, more and more stories, to the to the fore. And of course, not only those who lost their lives, but the survivors too. Um, so, you know, started to build this gigantic picture um, which irritated the hell out of the public because uh, we kept asking for additional time uh, because we had more and more and more to add. We were limited to a 70,000 word document. We reduced it in the end to 120,000 words but of course it was still edited after that um, even though we were keen to add more and more details we were just limited by, you know, unfortunately by, by
1: the, the confines of the publisher.
0: So what was happening? Hard- like in 1914 in terms of its demography, economy and geography?
1: Yeah, so indeed Hertfordshire is a fascinating location, Um, not only is it it home to um, around 330,000 people in 1914 but also it's home to quite a number of uh, well-known individuals including uh, prominent families such as the Bowes Lions, um, also people like uh, Smith Dorian who came from the county Um, and it also had, uh, because of its location, situated about 12 o'clock on the clock face outside of London had um, some pretty important links um, in terms of financial and also rail links moving in and out of the county, which made it a, a quite important staging post um, in 1914 as uh, as war was declared for units moving down um, into London and then eventually out to the Western Front. There were a, a number of units based there for a considerable period of time, such as the, uh, the Inns of Court, um, Officer Training Court, which was Based out in uh, in Berkhamsted, and uh, of course, within months, by the end of 1914, half is actually welcoming thousands and thousands of Belgian refugees who are fleeing the fighting, and uh, number of towns. Including uh, my hometown of Letchworth, have fully one quarter of their population is uh, Belgian by the time um, we get to the middle of 1915, uh, which leads to some interesting scenes. I'm sure Paul will, uh, will agree. We had, uh, amongst other things, town restaurants had three menus in uh, in Flemish, in French, and in English, and there was even a horse meat shop opened in the uh, in the local town high street, which is uh, a delicacy that hasn't quite um, hasn't quite lasted that century since the end of the Great War. When a uh, war
0: breaks out in 1914 and their, Lord Kitchener calls for local volunteers. What's the response of local men within the county of Hertfordshire?
2: I think the response was pretty positive, uh, really. A lot of men were already serving in the Territorial Army in both the Hertfordshire Regiment and the Hertfordshire Yeoman. Um, but overall, the response was very positive, much like it was across the country. Initially, of course, there were those who felt that they couldn't or shouldn't uh, volunteer, uh, for a variation of reasons but generally speaking it was, it was a good response.
1: And just to to add to what Paul says, it, it, I suppose it's quite important to set the scene with Hertfordshire as a county generally and, and it's fairly unusual one of only four counties in the UK that doesn't have a, um, a regular army regiment in 1914 so if you were from Hertfordshire and you wanted to join a, a Hertfordshire based regiment as Paul said it would either be the regiment, the Hertfordshire regiment or the Hertfordshire Yeomanry, both of which were territorial formations. Um, If you wanted to join the regular army pre-war, you would have to move across the county to Bedfordshire. And um, even once the... Kitchener's armies were starting to be formed again. That would be the Bedfordshire Regiment that you would join. In particular, the uh, the sixth and seventh battalion hold a lot of uh, a lot of men from Hertfordshire who who want to join his kitchen troops.
0: So that brings me on to my next question: Is what sort of units did men predominantly join up with? Um, I assume the army was probably the dominant service, but what sort of regiments did they did they enlist in?
1: It's kind of a snapshot of uh, of Britain, really, in in that sense. Um. Certainly in the early months and uh, in, in the early weeks, in fact, the Hertfordshire Regiment was was incredibly popular. A lot of people wanted to go ahead and serve with them. They, as a territorial unit, are one of the first three ter- terrier units to actually head out to the Western Front. And they're serving in time to, uh, to take part in the first Battle of Ypres. And so that kind of um, that kind of uh, newspaper interest was, of course, national, um, fed back into, uh, into the UK, and in particular to the young lads at Hertfordshire, who quite often wanted to join the regiment. Um, The Yeomanry is a slightly different story, smaller composition. They spend some time. uh, Their first action is actually at Suvla Bay and Gallipoli. Um, But outside of that, as we said, it's it's really individuals joining the army in Kitchener formations, uh, predominantly the Bedfordshire Regiment, but also there are men spilling over to our eastern border, into Essex, and uh, even the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry get a sprinkling of Hertfordshire uh, of men as well. I
0: wonder whether you could tell us some stories uh, that you uncovered in your research that cover sort of, firstly, um, men who are on active service. And then we can we turn to um, the home front? So let's starting with uh, men who enlisted in the forces. What sort of stories um, struck you as sort of, I suppose, prominent?
2: I think there were a phenomenal amount of stories. Dan and I, you know, poured over stories for a very long time in order to try and filter out those. Um, We didn't want to wind up with A, too many gallantry awards. We didn't wind up with too many officers or not enough. you know, and try to get a good mixture, uh, much like the war itself. You know, there was a lot of mundane activity. So we got one or two stories, were really ordinary, along with those that were far more outstanding. So um, one for me was uh, Sergeant George Major, who was uh, a Harpenden man, um, uh, an archetypal Edwardian soldier, a hard drinker, a hard fighter, um, nothing but trouble for his CO. Along comes the Great War and almost overnight change, you know, up steps this fantastic soldier, really, who uh, not only went on to uh, win a gallantry award, changed his uh, from the Bedfordshire Regiment uh, to the Border Regiment uh, and then served on the Western Front and in Italy, where unfortunately he went missing. Um, but for me, George Major... An outstanding soldier and an outstanding story of what typically, although he won the military medal, it is a fairly ordinary soldiering life but he was a professional rather than, than the territory.
1: And, uh, I think one that sticks out for me is uh, a, um, a particularly young lad by the name of George Drury, who in, uh, in 1914 is captured in probably the most famous photograph to come out of the county in the uh, in the Great War. It's a, it's a photograph that's taken on Letchworth Railway Station um, on the 4th of August as the territorials are coming home just before they depart for their training. George is only 16 in that photo. Um, he does go out with the 1st Battalion. He serves um, the first battle of Ypres, right through Kinchey and Festerbear and Battle of Luce in 1915, um, before being wounded on the Somme in the Ankara attack on the 13th of November. Um, by the time he reaches his 18th birthday, he's a he's a corporal, sporting a couple of wound stripes and uh, and a marksman's award. And he is, um, you know, his his adult life or, or what what's been leading up to his adult life has been entirely in soldiering. Um, despite the fact that he's a he's a Hertfordshire lad, he does end up uh, like so many other Hertfordshire men in the Bedfordshire Regiment transferred. Um, and ends up actually out in Italy uh, with the 7th Division, where he um, returns about the time that the spring offensive kicks off, as, uh, as many of the listeners will know about that kind of scramble for men. Um, George is actually awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal um, as part of the Battle of the Lease and is wounded for a third time quite severely, um, is eventually invalided home, ends up back in Hertfordshire, meets a, a young lady from Liverpool who's down in the county by the name of Sis and um, they become uh, sweethearts. And it's not too long after that that they get engaged. And George, with the war not quite done for him yet, um, accepts a a voluntary position to head out to take part in the uh, North Russian um, expedition. So he joins uh, Elope Force, eventually becoming at the age of 19 uh, uh, to the dizzying heights of Company Sergeant Major. Um, And uh, he is um, a rather incredible young man. He um, writes home to his parents fairly regularly during that time talking about his motivation for fighting also showing a fair amount of displeasure for the fact that a lot of men have been conscripted or out of the army by the time he is a volunteer is not um he remains for a number of months out near um out near Archangel and uh, goes out on uh, a number of missions with a Slavo-British legion battalion um very very sadly he is um well originally he's given a basically a chance to go home. The port is iced up. So he's asked to do one more job and he does. And he makes a 90 mile march through the, the wastes of uh, of northern Russia in in waist deep snow and uh, is, uh, is killed trying to rescue another 1914 man, his company commander, who's also raised from private to captain in the Great War. And uh, George is killed trying to rescue him in front of a, a Soviet machine gun in March 1919. Um, it's amazing to think that that same young lad who in 1914 left that train station never really came home. And despite the fact he lives to March, nineteen nineteen, does not see the end of the great war. So tell
0: me about uh, some of the research you did on the home front.
1: Okay. when it came to to looking at the home front in particular, there were a number of uh, a number of kind of classic stories that uh, that really strike with me. I think one that didn't make it into the book that I'd like to mention, actually, which will hopefully give you an idea of the calibre of the stuff that did make it in, um, is the fact that there was a um, uh, it was actually draws back to Belgian refugees who made their way into um, made their way into There's a particular armaments factory um, called the Crin and Leahy. It was actually a, it was an industrial factory which converted to armaments in 1914. Um, 500 Belgians are employed by the Belgian owners who were diamond merchants from Antwerp and decided to throw a lot of their wealth into armaments uh, production. Um, 500 people work four years producing shells um, in this factory. Over a million shells, a little bit over a million shells are are, are produced during that period of time. And the one thing that strikes me just when we talk about the scale of the Great War is 500 people with all of their wages every day, every week, every month, four years to produce all of these shells British Army, 29th September 1918, fired the entire production of that factory for four years in a single day. Incredible.
2: I think for me, uh, one of the the, the the stories that I found most poignant uh, was that Violet Clark, as uh, she was a munitions worker, uh, as Danny alluded to, uh, working for Crin and Leahy in Letchworth. Now, uh, she just happened to be producing shells. Um, unfortunately, Aprem got caught with a machine, dragged her against the machine. Uh, she... Received a fairly significant injury. She went to hospital and she was recovering, but she suffered, unfortunately, from, from an embolism. Um, and th- that brought about her her death. Um, but for Violet, who originally came from Sandon near Buntingford Ferdinand, was living in Hitchin at the time, um, there isn't any medals, there isn't any war memorials, there's no recognition whatsoever other than just a short brief article and a photograph in the hitching newspaper at the time after that she's gone and she's forgotten and certainly i think from our point of view as far as the home front goes although of course again we were restricted for for space uh, it's one of one of the most poignant stories that we can bring forward and it helps to remember those people who were serving home in all sorts of different roles including munitions um and and hopefully you know provide them with an opportunity to, to to be remembered
1: absolutely and there's a there's a particular story I think which probably stands out in Hertfordshire is that the best well-known from the county during the Great War and that is of course the uh, the downing of uh, SL-11 by Captain William Leaf Robinson um, who earns a Victoria Cross for that action near Cuffley in uh, the end of 1915 if I remember correctly. And that's a Zeppelin for those who don't know what LS-18 is. <laughs> it, it, indeed that's SL, SL-11 well this is one of the interesting things because it's technically not a Zeppelin it's a Shuttlands airship Um, which is uh, the wooden framed variant, albeit an interesting story, you find quite often you find bits of of, of Zeppelin, as it was referred to at the time, in fairness, uh, which are quite often touted as being bits of S11. The Chances are they're not. They're probably bits of L21, which is brought down about a mile away at Potter's Bar by uh, Wollstone Tempest a little while later, only a month or so afterwards, in fact. Um, But, you know, the the Zeppelin threat was a very real one and it it plagued the people of Hertfordshire um, the night that L21 one was um was actually brought down by tempest it was um there was a raid on on a number of hartfordshire towns one of which was mistaken hartford the county town uh, the river the river running through it which is about 15 feet wide was mistaken by the zeppelin uh, commander as having been the river thames which was uh, somewhat of, a, of an error of judgment, considering it was about 50 times wider. And he, re- he re- flew back safely and reported that he'd uh, bombed industrial targets in the East End of London. Uh, little did he know he, he bombed the, the local fish and chip shop in Hertford. Um, albeit it does cause casualties. And as Paul's rightly alluded to, actually a, a number of those casualties, whilst they're, they're absolutely casualties of the Great War, um, get very little recognition. And, and this book's given us an opportunity to, in a way, shine a light on them um, I think uh, there are a couple of in particular characters, a couple of particular characters that Paul would, could probably give us a little bit of a uh, background info. That's
2: right, and if I could remember the name, of it. I would. The <laughs> there's
1: a there's a young lady there's a young lady, isn't there, who um, uh, very sadly is, is killed. One of the one of the really strange things about the first Zeppelin raid on Hartford, which is in 1915, is that a number of the the men that are killed are actually um, killed because they leave their their sort of a gentleman's drinking club to go outside and have a look because it's such a such an unusual sight and a, a bomb lands amongst a group of about five of them as they're watching this zeppelin and, and kills them and it, it goes to show it's you know we quite often use things like the zeppelin threat as the death of naivety um i mean that's it's quite literally the case in, in that one little incident
2: yeah well, what uh, sorry what dan uh, alluded to was uh... The story of uh, Sophia Percy, uh, who was heavily pregnant at the time the uh, Hartford Air Raid was going on. uh, And she was so shocked by the dropping of the bomb that um, she miscarried at the time. She miscarried her child um, and the the loss of blood was so significant that she actually died uh, as a result. Um, They already had quite a number of children, uh, and the father took the children and moved away from. Because he moved away from Hartford, remarried after the war, when the civilians' names were added to the Hartford War Memorial, uh, hers was missed off. So uh, Sophia Percy uh, was a casualty of war in the Hartford era, uh, but is not recorded with the other uh, nine people that are on the memorial so there is another person and of course an unborn child as well who was buried with its mother.
0: So how have local people reacted to your stories and have you been able to tell people things about their relatives that they didn't know before?
1: Yeah you know the reaction has been outstanding actually we've had we've had some really really positive um, reactions and uh, it one of the the real I suppose the real moments of pride in in putting all of this together has been in the uncovering of those stories and, and kind of joining those links up all those years later. Um, one in particular which came about as a, as a result of the Hearts of War project and also writing this book was the story of a young Elphinstone Chamberlain um, he was uh, actually ended up in the Essex Regiment, but was very much half Gillad. Um He was only 20 when he was captured um, in uh, the latter end of the spring offensive and uh, found himself with a, a fairly minor wound being taken, uh, being looked after in a, a German hospital in a Belgian occupied or German occupied uh, Belgium in the, the city of Namur. Now, when the, when the war came to an end, um, Elfie, was desperately trying to get a note home to his mother, who all she knew was that he was reported missing. Uh, Communications have been pretty pretty awful at that point. Um, Eventually, Elfie was taken in by a local Belgian lady, and um, this, uh, this same lady was, uh, was writing home regularly, daily, in fact, to Elphinstone's mother back in Hertfordshire. Um, it took a number of weeks for that first of those letters to reach her. She wrote back immediately saying how delighted she was that her son was alive and, uh, you know, wishing him all the best and saying that she can't wait to see him soon. Sadly, um, because of the, the scarcity, the family story goes, because of the scarcity of bandages at that time, newspaper print had been used to wrap his wound and he actually got infected. And by the time she wrote back, um, expressing her joy that Elphinstone um, was alive. In fact, he had died um, a couple of days after his 21st birthday. Uh, the reason I, I bring that up is because that story was was in effect forgotten for uh, for ninety odd years until we had a, a family came in and they shared part of this story with us. Uh, the only part that they knew was that he had written uh, a Belgian lady had written this letter home. Um. So what Paul and I did was to was to research that area, that location, and actually write to the local newspaper in Belgium, and um, they very kindly printed an article trying to trace down this uh, mystical madame delay who we knew had looked after the family um somebody in belgium in namur saw that and said wow that's my grandmother they sent a uh, they sent a picture of uh, of madame uh lucille delay and uh we, we were very privileged paul and i to take the chamberlain family um, back to Namur a little while ago, um, and to stand at Elphinstone's grave with the Delay family who came and met us there, and uh, yeah, that was one of those really remarkable moments and special not only for for um, Paul and I, but of course for the families who were managed to re-establish that connection uh, almost a century on.
2: That's right, and I think also added to that is is of course the story of uh, the Hitchin soldier Percy Buck uh, who you know, in his death throes really and managed to get a postcard, um, in his hand, send this postcard back to my wife, which was found by a uh, German soldier uh, after the Battle of St. Julian and the, the postcard was um, sent through the Red Cross via Switzerland, uh, back to the family in Hitch. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic story, a, a really poignant story. Through the Hearts of War Project, we managed to contact the family, which was fantastic, and then Dan done some more in-depth work and eventually managed to uh, contact the family of of the soldier who the Germans who had found the, the postcard um so you yeah, know which was just you know it really rounded off the this the story in, in its entirety uh, and uh, um, you know a great Sort of epitaph for the regiment at the Battle of St. Julian, which is where it, you know, it suffered its greatest losses.
0: And my penultimate question is what research projects are you both currently engaged in at present?
1: Well, I'm very pleased to have uh, launched recently a, a project called Battle Guide Virtual Tours, which has taken up a vast majority of my time at the moment. What we're doing is, uh, is harnessing the the latest in in technology um and, and adding in a sprinkle of that magic that you find when you go out and visit battlefields um on the ground and, and really trying to offer something to transport people over to battlefields and uh, explore um in some cases sites that people know very well but from a completely different perspective we're using things like drone footage 360 degree photography and knitting those together with uh, veteran accounts and uh, that really has been um has been a a remarkable and fascinating um, journey and uh, you know be very pleased to uh to welcome uh, WFA uh, listeners uh, of course we are actually currently engaged in a uh, in a partnership with the WFA to deliver a series of those virtual tours so we'd love to uh, really looking forward to continuing that that partnership Paul cool. have you got anything yeah.
2: Yes, uh, I've got numerous things on the go, as I say, obviously, yeah, yeah, all centres around research, but at the moment, I'm uh, producing a series of books for uh, Pen and Sword. Um, ah, I'll start again. <laughs> I was distracted by your cat.
0: Yes, I know. She's a pain in the bum.
2: <laughs> Only because I thought it was my cat. <laughs> How did she do that? Um, you know, so... Uh, At the moment, I am working on a project for Pen and Sword Books, uh, producing a series of books on military murders uh, involving both the Great War and the Second World War. The first of which is called The Brookwood Killers, uh, and that is about the men whose names are recorded on the Brookwood Memorial uh, who were executed for the crime of murder during the Second World War.
0: And finally, where can people find out more about your research?
2: Buy the book. (laughs) Buy the book, yes. Um, Sorry, Dan, you were going to say.
1: indeed. people can, can, of course, uh, find us in a number of places, uh, despite... Aside from the usual social media channels, um, probably the best place is HeartsAtWar.co.uk, where you can find a good amount of information on half during the Great War. Uh, I should say, uh, Paul, who, who leads our historical team, um, has done a, a huge amount of work over, over the last uh, five or six years, uh, along with a number of other people. So the Hearts of War project, we're really, really delighted to have such a dedicated team of researchers. And these stories are coming out all the time. So you, you never know, there may be, uh, if there's a call for it and an interest, there may be a, a, a further expansion to, um, to, to the material that's come out of the Hartswell project in the form of a book in the future.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition